welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Andrea Louise Campbell, who is the author of Trapped in America's Safety Net, One Family Struggle. It's a really interesting book, published this year by University of Chicago Press. I hope that you enjoyed this interview that I did with Andrea. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I'm talking today with Andrea Louise Campbell, who's the author of Trapped in America's Safety Net, One Family Struggle. Andrea, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Good. It was a real pleasure to read the book. Uh, there's so much in it that I wanted to, to talk to you today about. But before we get to the book, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background, because your, your background, um, well, much like many authors, relates to the book, but, but your background actually relates in sort of a, uh, a very interesting way. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Well, I'm professor of political science at MIT, and a lot of my work is at the intersection of political science and public policy. I was uh, trained as a political behaviorist. I studied public opinion, voting behavior, and those kinds of things, but in particular around areas of social policy, health policy, social policy, tax policy. And I had uh, previously written books about Social Security, about Medicare. I had previously done some work about Medicaid as well. And um, so I thought I knew a fair amount about social policy in the United States, uh, but then um, this event came along, and I found out, in fact, how little I knew about how social programs really work on the ground in the United States. Yeah, and let's let's start there. Um, this book starts in such um, a powerful way, you know, perhaps powerful in a way that many academic books aren't. So let's let's start with the accident. Um, I wonder if you'd recount what happened to your family that set in most motion such disruption for their lives. In February 2012, my sister-in-law was driving to nursing school uh, on a freeway in California, and she was cut off by another driver, a hit-and-run accident. The driver sped off. We've never located the driver. Uh, her vehicle rolled over and crushed the roof and unfortunately left her a quadriplegic. Um, she was pregnant at the time of the accident. Fortunately, the baby, my little nephew, survived, and he's completely fine and very cute. Uh, but my sister-in-law, Marcella, was left a quadriplegic. So she has to use a wheelchair. She's paralyzed from the chest down. She has some use of her arms, but not fine motor control over her hands and fingers. Fortunately, she's completely alert. There's no brain damage or anything like that. And she can certainly speak and, and you know, think in an unimpaired way. But physically, she has this profound disability now. Would you tell us just a little bit about what their life was like prior to the accident? Because it really does make a difference in, in what happens afterwards. What, what was the life that they were living? That's right. Well, the reason she was starting nursing school is that uh, she and my brother had been married for a couple of years. He works for a very small manufacturing company, very small, and the company doesn't offer any employee benefits. So he had a modest salary, but no health insurance, no retirement plan, none of those kinds of benefits that signal middle-class financial security. So the plan was for her to go to nursing school and uh, become a nurse. That's one of the few jobs in the rural Northern California area where they live that can provide a solid job with benefits and you know good pay. And this is going to be their, their ticket to the middle class. Unfortunately, the reason she was on the freeway is that the uh, it was very difficult to find a nursing program to get into. The local community college had a two-and-a-half-year waiting list. She decided uh, then to turn to Cal State Chico, which is 70 miles away from Redding, California, where they live, my hometown. 
Um, so she was going to endure that commute to become a nurse. Um, and that program would have offered a, a bachelor's degree, which is superior to the associate's degree that the community college uh, would have offered. But uh, she was delayed even in entering that program because of state budget cuts. Uh, the, the, uh, she already had a, a bachelor's degree in political science at the time she decided she wanted to go to law school. When she changed her mind, she found out that the program, the nursing program at Chico had a, uh, a, a limit on it. No one with a BA in another topic could enroll as a way to reduce demand, which of course is ridiculous since nursing is the top occupation for, for job growth as projected over the next 10 years. Uh, so eventually that moratorium was lifted. She's able to start nursing school. Um, and I should probably speak to their, their insurance situation. Um, she had been looking for health insurance for herself and my brother, and they were hoping to start a family. When the nursing school moratorium was lifted, she needed to get insurance right away because you needed insurance to enroll. Uh, and then it turned out that she uh, became pregnant a little earlier than planned, and so she needed insurance for the baby as well. As it happens, there was a program in California called AIM, Access for Infants and Mothers, which insures people like her, women who have incomes that are too high for Medicaid, the health insurance program for the poor, but whose incomes are, or, but who don't have access to employer-provided insurance. So she had the AIM insurance that was going to cover the pregnancy and 60 days postpartum. They knew that the baby would have health insurance coverage because of the children's health insurance program, CHIP. Their income was under the threshold for California. So they thought they were all set. My brother still wouldn't have insurance, but she and the baby would. And then the accident happened and really plunged them into this crazy world of means-tested programs. Yeah, and, and there are so many public programs that your family encountered. And, and, and uh, we can also talk about how, why their situation, in fact, wasn't that unusual. But as a social policy researcher, which ones most surprised you? You already knew a lot about the subject matter, but, but a lot of the book is about just how surprising it was to you and, and how you seemingly as an expert had as much difficulty as everyone else negotiating and helping them to negotiate these rules. So are there a couple of, of, of these rules or policies that stand out to you that were surprising to you? Well, I guess the biggest surprise was the degree to which Medicaid has not been updated in California. So California, in many respects, is a very progressive and very generous state when it comes to social policy. And most of these means-tested programs are run jointly by the state government and the federal government with states setting eligibility and benefit levels. So California is pretty progressive, but not in every respect. So I was surprised to learn, for example, that um, California is among the half of all states that still have an asset cap for Medicaid. So uh, my brother and sister-in-law can have no more than $3,150 in assets total beyond their home and one vehicle. I was surprised to learn that asset limit has not been changed since 1989. Uh, so in 25 years, it's lost half of its real value. So, so that was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other surprises along the way, like California actually has the worst food stamp take-up rate in the country. The percentage of people eligible for food stamps who actually apply, it, it's the worst in California. Uh, Missouri is the best. So that was a surprise. And another surprising thing, uh, supplemental security income, which is a, a federal program that provides cash assistance to disabled people, also to poor, blind, and poor elderly people, 
in most states, oh, I should say SSI benefits are set nationally. They're below the poverty level. So it's kind of surprising that that's how we treat our disabled, blind, and uh, elderly folks. Uh, but also because it's a below poverty program, most SSI recipients qualify for food stamps, except not in California. Uh, SSI recipients are barred from applying for SSI. Now the state gives a, a supplement to SSI, a state supplement, which is supposed to make up the difference. But again, they haven't updated the supplement over time. So it's effectively turned into a benefit cut for SSI recipients, the fact that they can't apply for food stamps. So those are some of the surprises, uh, you know, that, that I, I knew there was state variation. Uh, and I knew that, that California was on the more generous end of things. I just didn't realize how uneven the policy experience would be, even in a rich, liberal, blue state. Uh, and, you know, in the book, you explain a lot about these uh, perverse or unintended effects of program design. Um, but, but many of these, like, like the asset restrictions that you just described, are in fact intended or, or at the very least not altogether unexpected. Um, I wonder if you could put some of these, these details that, that you explain in the book into a somewhat larger context of U.S. social policy for us. Um, this book, I think reading this book would come, a, come as a surprise to most Americans, but it would be shocking to people in other countries. So could you sort of take that step back for us and, and put this into the, the bigger context? Oh, sure. Um, so the programs that my brother and sister-in-law are now negotiating are in what we call the social assistance tier of, of American social policy. There are three tiers altogether. The social assistance tier is really meant for low-income people. It's targeted very tightly and that's why in most states you have to have income below a certain level and assets below a certain level to qualify. Um, so these programs would include things like Medicaid, food stamps, school lunch, uh, housing assistance, and so on. And so the idea is to target very narrowly at, at poor individuals. That, that's why there are usually income and, and asset caps associated with that. There's a, there's a second tier called the social insurance tier, which uh, will be more familiar to more people because pretty much all American workers are automatically enrolled in these programs. Social, the major social insurance programs include Social Security, which provides a pension in old age, and Medicare, which provides health insurance in old age. It also would include uh, unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, but Social Security and Medicare are, are the, big, the big items under social insurance. Then there's what you might call a third tier, but it's not publicly provided. It's the private system of employer-provided benefits. This whole system is completely optional. Employers don't have to provide benefits to their employees under U.S. law, but some employers choose to provide things like health insurance, retirement plans, uh, perhaps uh, paid sick leave or uh, parental leave. Uh, but that whole system of, of benefits is, is very optional, and typically, people in kind of higher level and higher paid jobs are more likely to have those employer-provided benefits. Um, uh, and so high-income people tend to have, have both social insurance and employer-provided benefits, um, whereas poor people only have, have social assistance. Now, now what about the, the um, Obamacare? Um, uh, can you connect this uh, with some of these problems? we thought were, were going to be solved or at least addressed. Um, how, does, how does this new federal legislation interact with, with a lot of the, the barriers and, and difficulties and, and things, things um, 
that you witnessed uh, with, with your family? Right. So, so you know, the principal aim, well, I guess there's really two principal aims of the Affordable Care Act. One is to spread health insurance more widely, uh, especially to people who don't have access to health insurance through an employer. Um, and then the other aim is to improve private insurance, uh, because we, we know that in the past, private insurers, whether you bought a, a, a plan directly from an insurer or even had employer-provided insurance, had a lot of restrictions. For example, you couldn't buy insurance if you had a pre-existing condition, or there might be an annual or lifetime cap on uh, the benefits you could receive. And so um, in terms of my brother and sister-in-law, uh, if the ACA had been in place, say, um, before her accident, the family could have been insured on the ACA. Uh, they would have been able to purchase a, a health insurance plan on a state exchange. California has its own exchange. Um, and uh, even now, my brother could probably buy a health insurance plan for himself on the exchange. Uh, but the thing to remember about the ACA is that it, it is about health insurance, and it doesn't address the other set of needs that my sister-in-law in particular has, which is that as a disabled person, she needs personal care assistance. You know, she needs help with bathing and dressing, and um, uh, she has to be catheterized every four to five hours. And um, part of what Medicaid, as the health insurance program for the poor, covers is not just uh, sort of regular health insurance items, but Medicaid is also covers personal care assistance. But regular health insurance doesn't. So the ACA is a really wonderful law in the sense that millions of Americans will now have access to health insurance uh, that didn't have access before, but it also leaves some of the issues for the disabled on the table. For example, the fact that Medicaid is really the only source, public or private, for long-term care, uh, personal care assistance, the kind of care that a disabled person would need over, over decades worth of life. Now, there's there's so much interesting stuff in this book, but I was, you know, in, in reading the book, and you sort of touch on this a little bit, um, you, you chose a, a, a unique way to write the book. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about at what point you thought that these events might might fit with an academic book project and mm. whether you thought at all about writing this as as a non-academic, as, as a more popular press book and, and uh, whether your, your uh, publisher, which is a University of Chicago Press, the, the conversation you had with them, were they always supportive of the approach that you took? Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, well, I guess the genesis of the book was, was the op-ed that I wrote in the New York Times two months after my sister-in-law's accident at the time that the Supreme Court was hearing oral, oral arguments about the ACA. Um, and after that appeared, uh, Larry Jacobs, who edits one of the series at University of Chicago Press, approached me about you know, possibly writing a kind of book version and uh, it's been a fascinating process because it's obviously different than any book I've written before. It's not analytical, analytical in the usual political science sense. It is a mix of narration about my brother and sister-in-law with uh, policy information, uh, much, of which, much of which I, I, I knew in at least some extent from teaching social policy and health policy courses, but much more of which I had to research for the book. Um, in terms of the decision to uh, write a book with an academic press versus, um, say, a trade press, you know, on the one hand, I think the material might have lent itself to a, to a trade press, but flipping through nonfiction books by trade presses, um, I just felt that I wouldn't have an, I, I wouldn't have the ability to put as much policy information in there. 
um, that, that there would be pressure to only write their personal story and not really show how their story is situated within the larger world of, of U.S. social policy, the, the three tiers, for example. Um, and so my, my thought after talking to some trade presses uh, and as well as academic presses was that a, a, an academic press would be the best. It would, allow, it would allow me to write the book, kind of book I wanted to write, um, but it's still published through the, the trade arm of the University of Chicago mm-hmm. Press, which means you can buy it on Amazon <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and so on. Um, so it's, it's not quite a normal academic book process, but, but pretty close to it. Um, and, and, and the press has been wonderfully supportive um, throughout the process. Has, has your sister-in-law thought of, of writing her own book? Has she, is, w- w- is that uh, her story, which, which is sort of in the book, but, but isn't this, isn't, she isn't the, uh, sort of the voice of the book. Has she thought about that at all? Um, you know, uh, we haven't actually talked about her writing her own story. Um, the truth is, unfortunately, like just day-to-day life is pretty difficult. Um, right. You know, it takes her hours to get ready in the morning because of all the, the care that she needs. Um, and by the time she does physical therapy each day and gets my nephew dropped off at daycare and then picked back up again. And, um, you know, her days are, are pretty full. Um, plus, she's trying to figure out long term, can she possibly go back to school in some capacity or work in some capacity? And so I think those kinds of concerns are, are dominating her thoughts. Uh, and I, I don't think she's really thought about writing writing her own her own book, but that might be an, an idea that <laughs> I could bring to her. Yeah, right. I, I I would imagine there would be an audience, whether it's feasible or not. I would I would think that there would be a, a quite a large audience. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go back to just a little bit of the the material before we finish up. Yeah, you described lots of um, lots of issues and and, and problems, uh, and and uh, some of them intended, some of them not intended. But does the system have to be this way? Um, you sort of wrap up by offering some thoughts on on um, sort of the, the nature of the system. And, and sometimes we throw up our hands and say, well, we, we live in this complex political system. It just has to be this way. Um, what, what conclusions have you drawn and, and, and where do you sit now on kind of the, the way in which all these pieces are put together? Is, is there a better way to put the pieces together? Well, you know, there are, and there, and there, there are already states that are starting to do things differently. Um, uh, so there are some, some directions to go in that I, that I think are actually quite politically feasible. For example, about, as I mentioned, half the states don't have asset tests for Medicaid. Uh, so no one who is trying to qualify for Medicaid has to spend down their assets to the poverty level to get it. Um, Along the same lines, with the Affordable Care Act, about half the states are expanding their Medicaid population, and the people who are newly eligible for Medicaid under the ACA don't face an asset limit either. Uh, and so there's been some talk among some policymakers. Uh, the New America Foundation is doing some work on this idea of either raising or eliminating asset tests for means-tested programs. Because the problem is that if, if people have no savings, then any little thing that happens is a complete emergency. You know, if your car breaks down, then you can't get to work. And, you know, what's going to happen to you then? Um, so, you know, an asset limit is, a, you know, most people who are applying for these programs have very modest assets to begin with. Um, so the idea, uh, you know, many states have found that it's just more efficient to extend health insurance to them and try to ferret out and monitor their tiny level of assets. Uh, so that's one direction I think that would that would help a lot. The other thing that I would help, and this is more complex, is that 
most of these programs have been added over time and rules have changed in a very, uh, they sort of accrued like barnacles on a ship and the rules can interact in ways that are illogical. Uh, for example, as you, as you leave means-tested programs, let's say you want to leave these programs and start working. As you gain income, you start losing eligibility for one program after, one program after another. Um, so one thing that could happen is would be to look at these programs in a more holistic manner uh, to make sure that people aren't losing eligibility at such a low income level that they're that they're still too vulnerable uh, on on the other side when they leave these programs. And then of course there there are larger scale reforms which I would love to see. One would be social insurance for long term care. You know right now the only way to get long term care, personal care, home health care, nursing home care is to be in Medicaid, this means-tested program. But other countries have shown that a social insurance setup, very similar to our social security program, can be a successful way to provide long-term care on a universal basis, which is a very promising prospect in the sense that over a lifetime, most of us will have a spell of disability. I mean, for most of us, it will be at the end of life, uh, but no one wants to have to spend down to the poverty level to get the care they need. So I would love to see universal social insurance for long-term care. But that's a bigger reform. We can yeah. no asset test. <laughs> right. Uh, it's just such an interesting book. Uh, Andrew's book is Trapped in America's Safety Net, One Family's Struggle, uh, published by University of Chicago Press, and is, as we have heard, available on Amazon. Uh, Andrea, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, well, thank you so much. 